millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The year is 1980. Sydney's streets are filthy, running rampant with crime and corruption. Puberty blues is onto the cinemas, Ice House is blaring on the stereo, it's humid and dangerous, and a young man has decided to join the police force to fight crime. That man, of course, is my dad. Loose Units, the podcast, was created to tell the cases that wouldn't fit into my first book, Loose Units. But Loose Units was a series of fantastical tales that I wrote based on the real crimes my dad solved on the force back in the early 80s. So this season, dad and I are finally going to go back, back, back to the year 1980, and each week we'll be going chapter by chapter through Loose Units, the book, and dad will tell us the story behind my version of events. It'll be thrilling revelatory, and as always, very, very loose. Welcome to Loose Units Origins. Hello and welcome to Loose Units Origins. Every week I sit down with Dad, who used to be a cop, and try and get him to tell the story behind the version of events that were told in my book, Loose Units. Now this week, we're doing chapter 13. Dad, are you superstitious? Do you think 13 is an unlucky number? Definitely not. You know, I actually, I'm not, I don't believe in superstition. I will gladly walk under a ladder with a, with a piece of glass, with a mirror. Did you, did you find that kind of a problem when you were a firefighter, having lots of ladders around? Did you? Oh, did you find that there were many people who worked in the fire brigade who were superstitious? No. No? No. N- not that they'd admit to it. I think being superstitious is actually, whilst people may hold um, deep superstition about various things, uh-huh. which is fairly evident um, in buildings in the city where they don't have a 13th floor. Right. Now, I think that's... Well, now here's a little... Well, obviously, they do have a 13th floor. You can't be going up a building, and if you're on the outside counting 1 to, say, 20, and you come to the 12th floor, what's the next floor from the outside? It's a number between 12 and 14. It's 13. Right. But when you get in the elevator, they don't call it 13. They might call it... uh, 12.5. 12.5. Right. Or 12 like a mes- so it's, But that's, that sounds like a mezzanine. But what I'm saying is in your time in the emergency services, let's say you are with a particularly superstitious cop and you see a black cat pass by and then you have to head into room 13. Like how often is there an inherent rationality in the brain of people who deal with emergencies or do they, just like everyone else, sometimes get afflicted by, you know, superstitious nonsense? Regularly when I look at my phone, it says 11.11. It happens a lot. And sometimes I think to myself, is that a sign that I should go and buy a lottery ticket? But that's actually insanity creeping in. Because invariably I do go and buy a lottery ticket, which clearly 
indicates that I have severe mental health issues. I never win, but you've got to be in it to win it. And one of the weirdest things that ever happened to me, Paul, was when I saw an albino fox at four in the morning on the Harbour Bridge. And some might say that's an omen. I mean, do you ever... What about you? Do you Are you superstitious? If you well, see a ladder, do you walk underneath it? Sometimes I do it on purpose just to kind of spite the gods. I don't mm. believe in horoscopes um, no. at all. Can I, I think- can I give you one of my theories about horoscopes? Sure. sure. Um, there, there are horoscopes that come out every day uh-huh. and they talk about... Well, there are 12 months, aren't there? Yeah. So 12 horoscopes. And my brain... If someone starts talking to me about horoscopes, I say, yes, but how many people are there in the world? I think it's about 8 billion. If you divide 8 billion by 12, you come up with a bloody big number. And I say to that person, are you saying that that 800 million or so are all going to experience the same? Anyway, look, mate, no, I don't. I don't think you can actually afford to be, uh, if you're a professional out there doing some really creepy stuff, I mean, I've been to some satanic um, crimes, no doubt about it. And sometimes, in fact, just a few days ago, but I'm not suspicious, but I was walking somewhere and I had this creepy feeling that a person that I'd just passed was going to come up behind me and stab me in the back with a knife. And I sort of upped my tempo and I was covered in goosebumps. And it was during the day. And is that rational or irrational? Is it a sign? Is it a... Look, I do know there are many things in this world we don't understand. That's mm. a fact. That's we, we cannot deny that. But, look, I mean, imagine if you were suspicious about certain things. Imagine if you were suspicious about the 13th floor and you had a fire on the 13th floor. I mean, would you go to it? Well, yes, because you're a professional. So, but you're saying okay. So you're saying you would, as a professional, you might feel that little glimmer of weirdness, but you would mm. stow it because you're a pro. And also, I think, and this is a bit of a big call I'm about to make, but I dare say, in a in an organisation that's set about doing some pretty, you know, heavy stuff, I think it would be perhaps perceived, mm. maybe just by the person that has the thought but it could be perceived as a sign of weakness. That's, that's how I, I feel. I don't know whether I'd be prepared. Maybe jokingly you could, you could say, hey, guys, you know, I'm feeling that this is a bit weird, but no, it, you know, I mean, there are, I mean, look at baseballers when they, you know, have you ever watched the, the, some of the mannerisms these guys have? I'm a huge baseball fan. Yeah, I'm yeah, a Giants have, fan. Yeah, they, they do the, yeah, the weird it's little. It's a ritual. I, know, Dad, and I think that's no. a. Cro- I think it's a crock. Dad, they're not. No, they're speaking to the to the coach. So no, they're basically, no, mate. I, I I get that. I'm talking about a, a, a like a guy, a batter. Yep. That's that's up there, and he goes. Some of them go through the most incredibly bizarre rituals, and then they finish it off with say they spit. Okay, I'm quite aware of the sign code communication, but if you look at various sports like a cricketer the way he he rubs the ball not his balls but he rubs the the big red ball the ball yeah the ball you reckon um, what the australian cricketers could have fobbed off the sanding the sandpaper uh incident by saying that that was a uh just like a superstition based tradition where 
you know, you have to rub the ball counterclockwise three times with sandpaper or your, or your, or your parents yeah. will die. Yeah. Well, you know, what may have happened is that the guy may have actually been doing some sanding prior to the match mm. and had actually forgotten about the sandpaper in his undies. And then uh, when he rubbed it down to, to actually just give it a bit of a rub, mm. he inv- inadvertently, no, no it doesn't, doesn't cut the mustard. Very much aware that this is a true crime podcast, Dad. So what I think we should do is jump into this week's chapter. Mm. which is chapter 13. Oh, yeah, that's why we were on Superstition 13. Chapter 13 is called Out of Area. Um, And it basically starts with... Well, you know what? I'm just going to read the start. Here we go. Before clocking off, he checked his pigeonhole. Everyone had their own pigeonhole labelled with their name and rank, and twice a day before clocking on and clocking off, John would check that of probationary constable John Verhoeven. The tiny copper plate letters winked at him as he fought back exhaustion. It was, as always, bursting with files. But that's how it was for probationary constables. They got given a lot of extra grunt work. If you've ever seen a kid clean their room by simply shoving the mess under the bed, that's what the lower down's pigeonholes were to the senior officers. The space underneath the bed. The cavernous grotto into which one crammed junk before boldly claiming, yes, they cleaned their room. If you were a constable in the country, and there was a hit and run in your area, but for some reason a witness lived in North Sydney then you'd have to fill out a special form and send it on over, requesting that someone in North Sydney interview and process said witness. Coming down from, say, Albury to complete that one menial task wasn't a particularly good use of police time. And that's the kind of petty labour, the kind of asinine busywork that found its way into these pigeonholes, and which was then filtered down to probationary constables. And as much as John might have wanted to ignore these kinds of requests, he couldn't. His sense of duty, as well as the rules, wouldn't allow it. Another thing he couldn't do that any officer wasn't allowed to do was go out of area. Now, Woodstock, who was your partner at this point, chronologically, uh, also known as Ant-Man, was one night going to take you out of area in a very, I would say, obvious way. Now, the reason I find this chapter interesting is not because you were taken out of area, because we've talked about that before. Something that just hasn't been talked about on this show, Dad, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how we can tackle this, is, is Julian. So, Loose Units, the book, kind of talks up this uh, friendship slash partnership that you have with this character called Julian, not his real name, obviously. And we've never talked about Julian, really. I mean, he's come up in passing. But I think for people who've read the book or who are reading the book, or for people who just keep hearing the name mentioned, and I hope I don't have to edit too much out here, but could you tell us a little bit about your first meeting with Julian, what your first impressions were, and uh, and you know how that relationship evolved? We met on a on an afternoon shift at a park. So what what used to happen when we were junior police? You'd be you'd be the driver. Mm. You had a senior man, but in my case, I had, uh, well, you know, you had your senior man. And, you know, chronologically, Paul, I hadn't met Julian at this stage. I was aware, but I'd only, I was still in my buddy period. Yeah. So I actually haven't met Julian, but. But in terms of, you know. Well, but in terms of dramatic effect, it was important to, stru- to structure it, you know, because if you're watching the show and you need the character introduced, that you, you can put that meeting anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. But I wanted to kind of tie it in here because you did meet, you know, you did, you did meet out of area. It just didn't happen yet. No, that's right. But what used to happen is that there used to be sort of covert um, clandestine meetings mm. between various police that worked in different areas. 
And because you're the driver, you you are a dog's body, mm. and you're not going to argue with a senior police officer under any circumstances. And I was happy just to go with the flow because, you know, I there were a lot of things I didn't understand being so junior. Yeah. But there, there, there were locations within our area and also within other patrols, um, normally parks and very dark, where we would meet. And um, they'd open up the back of the police car. Yeah. And there'd be a stash of, uh, of beer, cold, mm-hmm. that had been picked up from various um, pubs that were basically, well, I don't want to say on the take, I guess technically they they're on the take, mm. you know they because they, you know that in this world you don't give something unless you expect something in return. So the pubs used to ply the local police with uh, copious quantities of alcohol, knowing that if the shit at the fan, which it regularly did in pubs back in the eighties, you'd 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 basically drop everything and 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 get there pronto, um, and that was kind of how it worked. Um, and if perhaps you didn't get looked after by a certain establishment, and there were establishments, and looking back, rightfully so, that just said, fuck you, um, we're not going to be a part of this, but I hate to say it, but they would generally get a bit of a tardy response. Isn't that what incredible? I found, yeah, what I found less interesting than where they got the beer, because I didn't think it really mattered where they got it, was, mm. you know, the, first of all, the fact that you guys were... <sighs> You know, I mean, diverting police resources oh, so that mate. they can sink the piss, sink the piss on 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 duty. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, it was just I just, and the, of course they'd try and get you in in. And these are the, look a lot of the police that did this sort of thing. Um, you know, a lot of them were were good blokes, but you, you could argue that you know some people that go out and murder people that mm. essentially they're nice people. It was just a bad night, but I think these senior police felt more comfortable knowing that if they offered you a beer, you'd, you'd take it. Because if you didn't take it, you were then the weak link in the chain. Mm. And then they would look upon you with suspicion because they would think that you'd go back and, uh, and dob them in. And um, so it, there were fine lines being, being sort of walked almost on a daily basis in the police force. And you're, you're working with numerous personality types, you are working with police that are laissez-faire and couldn't give a flying fuck about anything. Mm. You're working with professional footballers that were amongst the laziest police I ever worked with. Um, you're working with police that were ready to retire, that just did not want to get involved in anything. You're working with police that were incredibly competent and, and, and dare I say it, proactive and and were, were, were exciting and thrilling and you just wanted to be amongst it. Um, so it was all types. But uh, the first night I met Julian was at a park, out of area, pitch black, uh, a couple of police cars rocked up. It was the Arvo shift. It would have been about maybe seven or eight at night. And uh, and they'd specifically, this was a regular thing, uh, and you'd rock up, there was absolutely, it was, it was literally pitch black. It was just the glow coming from inside the police cars if you had the interior light on. Mm. And um, and there was um, my future, uh, you know, best friend. And he was in another car and we, we sort of, I mean, all the senior guys are sort of chatting. You know, these are guys that have got long-term strong relationships. And, yeah, Julian and I, we uh, 
we just started talking and I realized that, wow, this is a guy that's similar age, uh, similar interests, um, you know, just an interesting person, someone that I thought, yeah, I'd like to get to know you uh, better. And, of course, as time goes by in your stories, in your book, Paul, mm. we, we ended up working together and we ended up um, being quite a sort of a dynamic duo. Can you talk me through, because, I mean, yes, that is objectively true, but I want your kind of first impression upon, you know, I, I want you to kind of walk us through what it was like actually meeting him. Like, Well, he could have been, he, I mean, I, it's very difficult for me talking about him, Paul, because A, I have to concentrate to not use his name, yeah. and I don't particularly want to describe him as he really was. Okay. Um, I just feel more comfortable being slightly generic. Having said that, yeah, um, he could have been a male model. He was a, he was a very, very stylish bloke, and he had uh, you can go you can go hair color. That's fine. I mean, yeah, well, you know, he had black hair and just a yeah, a, and he had, he had an amazing family that I became very close to over well, the years. Yeah, now he was something. So he was my godfather, uh, mm. and he was very, very close. He practically became family at one point. Mm. Um, but how would you describe his? personality and how would you describe like walk us through your first impression of what he was like as a well, person he, yeah well he'd been to university um to sydney university and um you know he was fit you know he worked out he loved all the things i loved he loved scuba diving swimming um loved police work he was a smart guy and um but we were we were you know thick as thieves we became plus another guy three of us in fact no four god there were four of us and um, and we used to meet regularly, and but you know the the friendship just evolved. I mean, the so funny say, thing about all this, Paul, is that none of this is in the chapter. What do you mean? That, that we're that we're talking about the Julian stuff happens later. It happens later in the book during another out of area story. Correct. That's right. This, however, this I mean, this chapter covers something which is which is really really interesting to me, and that is the fact that you exercised your deductive muscles earlier in the book and listeners and readers will know that you saw the red lipstick on the wall in the bathroom mm. and you saw Woodstock leaving and you went, oh, okay. Uh, obviously, someone's had a very good time in that room. Yeah. Um, and this is the chapter where you find out, you you know, you actually get to kind of pull the trigger on that, mm. on that piece of deduction. Mm. Um, I often talk about the fact that your deductive reasoning is probably tempered by the fact that you would you would get a bit of a rush out of solving a problem mm. and of solving you know whether it's a big or a small one, mm. and then you would have that melancholy moment of it being a really tragic situation. This isn't tragic. This might be stressful, but it's not actually tragic. Um, could you talk us through through what it felt like to solve a mini crime in this case? Mm. Well, we 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 had to go out. We God, I just said we had to, but we 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 needed to go out of area according to, you know, my buddy. Yeah. And he lived a fair way. Uh, in fact, many suburbs from North Sydney. Mm -hmm. And it was a day shift. And, I mean, I didn't know his private situation. Quite frankly, I didn't really care about it because I, I had my own views about this particular guy. Um, and I just wanted to get through my the final part of my buddy period. And I had just had to be there. And, you know, he was he was just... If I had to, well, he's not the sort of person that I'd sort of socialise with in my private life. Have you seen him for, since? 
Have you seen him? No, God, no. I probably wouldn't even recognise him. He'd be. A- I don't mean. I don't mean socially. I mean, have you like you know been on the northern beaches and seen someone who you think could have been? Him? No, never. He was from the bush, and he's probably got, if he's still alive. Mm. I mean, I reckon he was pretty unfit back in the uh, back in the eighties. Wasn't he police rescue? Yeah, but he just was a big kind of unit. You could see he had the. He was predisposed to becoming, um, dare I say it, obese. And he had a bit of a drinking problem. I mean, you know, there are, there are police in various sections of the police force. I mean, I was in Manly this morning mm. at a coffee shop and I looked at two police officers. One had three stripes, one had two stripes, and they were both... Uh, well, one of them was overweight mm. and one of them was very overweight. Aside from all the gear they were carrying around their bodies, all the extra gear... They would be a joke in a in a foot pursuit. So if you're a crim and you're fast and, and and light on your feet, like up where we are up in the cross, there's a lot of foot patrol work. I don't I don't know whether it's just King's Cross Police Station, but all the police up there look like bloody ex Olympic athletes. I mean seriously, they, they 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 but they're on foot all the time. And if and I've seen them running up here. I've seen six police on foot sprinting with all that gear on. But um, yeah, so my 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 buddy, you know, he just look. They just ran their own race, and he decided one day because I'm just the driver, mm. and he just says to me, "You're heading to Collaroy." Now, Collaroy for listeners is about. Let me think about this. Let's say it's 15 kilometres out of out of area, and I'm shitting. I'm shitting bricks, because if we get an urgent job, imagine you're, you're heading out of North Sydney. You go over the spit bridge, Mossman, um, and for listeners overseas and you know that don't know, it's you kind of go over this bridge. Um, you come onto the northern beaches. Uh, the roads were a lot more convoluted back then. We've got some freeways, kind of freeways now, but you still had to to go through many many suburbs heading north to get to this suburb called Collaroy, and and he had an apartment there. And um, my my fear whenever I went out of area was imagine if there's a signal one at North Sydney. Imagine if there's a uh, an SKP that, that grabs a police officer's gun in the station. And and just you, there are so many situations. Imagine there's an armed robbery in progress. Imagine if there's a sexual assault being committed, the offender's left on foot. Mm-hmm. Um, I just imagine that. And these things can and do happen all the time. And if you're not in area, you cannot respond. And if you do respond, by the time you get back there, the the event has long gone and, 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 and they're going to say, where where were you? Where were you? Oh, and then you can bullshit. But then they'll say, oh, someone at DY command, they saw you. Because you, you've got the numbers in, back in those days, you had numbers emblazoned all over the car. You had six in huge writing on the roof. Yep. That was for helicopters, so they could but look you, down. But if you see a car with six on it and it's on the northern beaches, you know it's out You know area. it's North Sydney. Yep. It should say 14 or 24 yep. or wh- whatever it should say. Mm. You know, and in today's world, um, unless you're highway patrol where you, where you can just basically go wherever you like within reason... Mm-hmm. Um, you're sort of a free agent. But, you know, if you're working a car at North Sydney, 
and you piss off, which is what we did, um, you know, the good news is I'm the junior man. I didn't, it's not my decision. I'm not going to get fucked over for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh, but if you are part of it, Aren't you somewhat? I mean, uh, uh, mate, I, you are not complicit at all. Okay. Well, you can't say to the senior man, by the way, he's also your buddy. You yeah. can't say, oh, listen, uh, you know, I just don't feel right about this. I'm getting out at the next red light. I mean, you may as well just le- leave the job. Yeah. You, you can't. You go with the flow. And nine like it, times out of ten, it's okay. I f- yeah, I feel like at this point, you. Look, again, the thing that interests me about this story is less that you were out of area, because we've talked about that before. Mm. It's more that you rock up at this guy's house, Mm. right? Mm. And then you see the person who is the bearer of the lipstick, and then you kind of put two and two together. It's that moment of deductive reasoning, mm. even though it's played for comedy in the book that I'd like you to talk about. I mean, mm. first, talk talk us through... Oh, here's, here's an interesting question, I think. This sounds like it's a share house, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, I've lived in a couple of share houses myself, but never with people in the emergency services. Um, mm. My assumption would be either the furnishings are pretty sparse because people are doing shift work, they don't have time to mm. really... I and mean, what, what does a share house full of cops look like? Well, the most important thing about a share house back in the 80s for police, for example, Mm. was the fridge. That's really important. And basically the only thing it had in it was beer. Is that because justice is served ice cold or uh, they still have drinking problems? Yep. Um, And and you've got shift workers within that group. So there were three or four police living in that establishment. That that was an apartment near the the beach. And um, we went up... And, you know, I, I never conversed that much with my buddy. Like, there were there were hours and hours of silence because he had nothing. I mean, I had nothing to say to him. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was not erudite. He wasn't interesting. He was, oh, God, I can't even describe the bloke to you. He was just, oh, God, he was boring, putting it mildly. But can you imagine me being a young, like, I mean, the listeners know what I'm like. You know what I'm like, Paul. Yeah. I'm like a coiled spring. And that just made me a better policeman working with people like this because I vowed that I'd never be like them on so many levels. Mm. I never went out of area like like these these people did. But we go into this apartment and it was sparse. And um, he went straight to the fridge, pulled three beers out, which I thought was a bit weird, set them on the counter, <clears throat> and um, and then he's another police officer that I knew from um, North Sydney that is featured in future chapters. Yeah, and he's a, he's a tough man, hard man, scary man. Uh, again, built like he was massive because I'm seeing all these men from my perspective, and I was a pretty pretty weedy sort of a guy. I'm not now, but I used to be, and. Um, and we kind of, I'm, it, it was awkward for me. I'm feeling awkward about, worried about getting a call. Um, and they're just sort of chewing the fat. And then all of a sudden, this girl, she came into the room and she was wearing, and I don't want listeners to think it's weird that I remember what she was wearing, but I do. She was wearing a crocheted bikini. And I know it was crocheted because... I, I mean, she she could have been naked. I mean, this was this was lo- loosely cro- crocheted. There were there were gaps within the crocheted stitching. Was she a cop? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a police officer at North Sydney, mm. and she comes in. She kind of looks at me like <laughs> just just looked at me and thought almost nothing. Just sort of almost stared through me. I, I, I'd recognised this girl. I mean, I recognised it. I'd seen her in uniform many times mm. and I kind of did a double take when she walked in. She basically could have been definitely in the nude. It was very... If you, if you sort of unravelled her bikini top and bottom, you might have come up with maybe two metres of thread. I mean, seriously, this thing was... And, and I did it. And I, she wasn't embarrassed. She kind of almost... And she was, she was, she was. I'm trying to think of a nice, well, an accurate way of describing her physique. But she was muscly. Um, she was muscly. I, I think she worked out because there was a, um, there was sort of a gym, like a set of, you know, those workstations with barbells and. Yeah, this kind of gets to the point of what is in a police officer's share house. Yeah, yeah. There were so the, a, f- a fridge and a makeshift gym. Yeah, and a makeshift gym and there was a lounge. And I mean, I didn't get to see inside the bedrooms. There were two rooms, two bedrooms. Mm. She came out of one room um, and she sort of go comes over and I recognized her. But the thing that really stood out that day in mm. Collaroy almost 40 years ago, because she wore mm. the most... Brilliant red lipstick, but this was no ordinary lipstick. This was a, you know, I can imagine this lipstick being worn in the 1950s in Paris. It was just thumping, glowing, shiny red. And this is kind of at 10, 30, 11 in the morning, mm. which is like 
that's what she that was her signature and i remember she was often told at the police station to remove her red lipstick because they were really strict about you know i mean they didn't allow um but i saw and i and i thought to myself i've seen that lipstick before and i then sort of sized up the this kind of it wasn't a love triangle but what it was it was a relationship between her and the other guy sitting on the lounge but then i began to realize that it was like a it was like a triangle wanted to be a triangle where one person really also was very fond of the girl but was not a part of it but he was living there so he was that would have been tough i reckon to have a, a bit of a crush on a particular girl but know that your mate your best mate that's her that sort of there together but but when, but when i looked at her um i realized in, in a microsecond that her lipstick was the lipstick that i'd seen on the wall the rear wall of the toilet cubicle at north sydney police station uh and then i began to put two and two together and i then realized very uncomfortably paul that mm-hmm. um that she actually was kind of had had a, an intimate um occasion with um with my buddy who was living in the house with um with her her boyfriend her boyfriend who was a very very big man who was incredibly massive and who is featured in many chapters to come i mean being a kind of nasty you know let's be honest violent man having a big physique is obviously an advantage um mm. it seems like it seems like him and ant-man were cut from the same cloth it seems like i have a very similar demeanor and a similar approach to policing the big guy that was sitting on the couch he he went on to become uh, a, a pretty awesome detective did he mm. but that's another story you've never told us about this well Anyway, Go on. Look, it's, it's, no, tell it, us. Tell us. No, 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 mate. That's it's sort of. I will, but not not today because there's there's a sense of there are lots of other things that I need to discuss with you. Uh, you know, perhaps off air, just to run it by you. Okay. 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 I think that'd be prudent. Sure. So once you figure out that the lipstick belongs to the woman, mm. and once you realise that you're in a house with a, I mean, did you feel like if the go- if the bloke found out about the affair, he would have done something. Oh well, look. Ultimately, mate, things things did unravel in that in that situation down the track. Really? really? Uh, yeah, and there were there were all sorts of dramas, and mate, there were dramas that were just. Can you un- can you please please spell some out because the episode we we would I would love you to kind of talk through some of those. Okay, well, one of the things I can say that's quite unbelievable is that the big guy on the couch. Yeah. Uh, one day he he found out that my buddy, and this is sort of months down the track, that he was having a bit of a fling with the girl. Yeah. And it was in the morning. We had a certain sergeant that used to carry a... He was a supervising sergeant and he was a really sweet guy but sad and, and odd and, and dysfunctional and maladjusted and, and basically should have been either a... Look, he was borderline... Um, look, he, he he had serious problems, and one of the saddest things about this particular sergeant at North Sydney, and a, and a hand on heart, Paul, to you and the listeners, he used to carry a certificate that had been written by a psychiatrist to say 
that he was not suffering from any mental conditions. He was not insane. And sometimes he used to pull the letter out. If anyone had a go at him, like in a mean, nasty way, he would then, the first thing he'd do was like a default manoeuvre. He'd quickly open his wallet and he'd Mm -hmm. show you this letter to say he was not insane. Isn't that sad? Yeah. And he was really, really... Mate, I could talk about this supervising sergeant, but maybe another time, but he was the sergeant on duty and the big guy on the couch months later got some news that his his mate, my buddy, was having a bit of a an affair and everything was going pear-shaped. And this um, police officer, he threw his gun and handcuffs uh, down on the floor at the station and he started crying and then he just walked out of the station and said, I'm never coming back and he started walking up the highway in half uniform having a nervous breakdown oh and this God. sergeant said to me, John, follow him up the road and please, please talk to him and get him back and so I remember, I, mean, I'm, I only had a few months under my belt and I'm driving up Pacific Highway fairly slowly and there's this police officer who's basically pulled the pin on the police force because of a relationship gone bad with another police officer and look it was all interrelated interconnected and he was sort of he was in an emotional state and I'm following and I remember I had the window down and I'm driving next to him he's on the footpath trying to get home and I'm shouting out and talking and trying to cajole him into getting back in the car and eventually I did and and I drove him back to the police station and um, he then went into the station got his gear and it was as though nothing had ever happened that was a surreal day in my life in the police force so did did he actually quit or was it just no, kind of No, no, he just had a, a, a like a, a mini breakdown. Right. It was the weirdest thing, Paul, because this guy went on to become a super, super heavy detective. Right. A man that, 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 um, that, oh God, how can I put it? He became a detective that was really heavy and, uh, the stories about him are legend, but uh, this was just an um, like a mini breakdown right. that happened when he was clearly emotionally, um, you know, compromised. Yeah, oh, it, was, it was heavy, and and you know that whole experience, me driving up the Pacific Highway in a General Duty's police car with a window wound down. He's on the footpath crying, literally bawling. He was so devastated. And there's me. I'm 21 years of age. I'm super junior. I'm trying to, A, drive in a straight line and not run up on the gutter. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I'm also like a counsellor telling him that everything will be okay. And But you knew. I mean, you knew about this yeah, but beforehand. He did, he, yeah, but he doesn't know that I know. Mm. I mean... That thing about the lipstick on the wall. Yeah. I mean, other people may have known whose lipstick that was. I mean, it's circumstantial, let's face it. Of course. But pretty strong Yeah, in that I know that no other policewoman at North Sydney mm-hmm. wore that colour lipstick. And I know that I interrupted my my buddy that night upstairs. Um. You know, he was, he was, I'd probably just missed the action. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that that was just incredible. And, um, but Paul, 
One thing you did talk about and you write about are the pigeonholes. Can I just expand on that a little bit? Of course. Yeah, of course. Um, Imagine listeners, because I know the listeners like to come on a bit of a behind-the-scenes journey uh, with these podcasts, Paul, Uh, and I love going sort of behind the scenes and delving a little bit, but at the back of North Sydney Police Station, they had that vending machine, like a 1950s Coca-Cola machine. Mm -hmm. Um, That same machine that that young probationary constable at his first day at North Sydney Police Station was when we were all on parade where he was um, thrown up against and over that machine and sort of sodomised in a simulated way. And this guy was 19. Uh, So that that was his introduction to General Duties at North Sydney. Um, But in that same room was a very large um, metal, fairly antiquated uh, cabinet with open pigeonholes. And you had your name. Every every single police officer at North Sydney, of which there were n- many, many, many police, they all had their names um, and you had a pigeonhole. Now, what happened was, as you, as you so eloquently describe, you know, a lot of uh, police work can't be done, like if it's an inquiry or something that has to be done, but it's a country station and they need a witness statement and you happen to be in the area you get the gig. So every single shift you'd come in and there were these, my shoulders would drop because a lot of the files were just crap. And you'd go through these files and it was a never-ending, just just never-ending files coming through. And when you went on annual leave, some there was a trick that we used to use. We'd get a piece of cardboard and we'd cut it to the exact shape of the entrance of our pigeonhole mm-hmm. and you would tape it. And bind your pigeonhole so nothing, not even air, could get into it. Of course, when you came back from your annual leave, someone had, with great glee and almost in a malicious, mean-spirited way, they'd ripped your your cover off the pigeonhole mm-hmm. and they'd filled it with shit. Not human shit, but, but like files. Work. Yeah. Files. And you'd come back. The first day back from annual leave... And you might have 40 files. So you had to go into a room, sort them out in, in order of priority. And a lot of these files were to go and interview scumbags that wanted to become tow truck drivers. And you had, because we had a lot of boarding houses in North Sydney and Kirribilli. And these boarding houses, I ended up going to a lot of those when I was in forensics, because invariably people would die in these boarding houses. And some of them were just completely depressing. Like oh, I'm talking tiny little rooms, uh, no 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 dining facilities, no showers, no toilets, just a room with a bed, and they they, they were cavernous. And uh, a lot of the the sort of people that got out of jail, for example, you know, they would end up in these boarding houses. And some of these people that got out of jail wanted to become tow truck drivers, so you'd have to go to these boarding houses and interview them as to their character. Can you imagine that? And if you said anything negative, you'd get the file back. So I figured, look, if you've just got out of the bay, you've done time, you're, you've got lots of jail tats, you're pretty scary, then you have fulfilled all the traditions and all the criteria to become a tow truck driver in Sydney in the 1980s. 
Now, that's an example. And then you also had to go to people's houses and, and get statements for all sorts of things. There might be a witness to a, to a, a relatively minor crime. They may have witnessed a, a shoplifting offence. And, mm. and, and you had these files. And then on top of all that, you had police work to do. You're on patrol. You are responding and reacting to the day-to-day stuff. And some of it was really, as you know, really heavy. You know, you might have an, the odd car chase. And then sometimes you'd be sitting in someone's house getting a sort of some inane statement about something really minor. And you would hear sirens in the background. But you knew that you were sort of stuck here doing this, this menial work. And you could hear that something was big, something big was going down in your patrol. And by the time you finally got your statement of whatever, you'd get you'd get, go back out to the police car and you realised that you'd you know missed out on something really dramatic. Because let's face it, it was pretty exciting, you know, getting to drive quickly to various jobs and all that sort of so. So the fun stuff. So there's always fun stuff that you know sort of makes the day really exciting. But like every job in the world, there's mun- mundanity, and um, and that was a part of it, and that was the pigeonholes. And um, if you were right down the, the bottom of the, of, the, of the heap, which probationary constables were at the very bottom in the station, mm. you, you got all of the absolute. And I'm sure there were senior guys that had sort of look at it, look at and go, mm, I don't feel like doing that. And they just slotted in the old probationary constables. And we had a lot of probationary constables at North Sydney. There would have been, at any given time, at least 20 probationary constables. And I guess in a way, it's kind of a pretty good way to sort of learn the ropes because, you know, you've got to start at the bottom. Yeah. And um, so that was just a system we used to use. I don't know what I imagine. Everything's computerized now in the police force. Mm. But, um, yeah, look, you know, there were there were relationships happening within every station. Such as the one that you kind of cottoned onto with your little piece of detective work. Mm. Mm. But what's interesting about the about this whole thing between, you know, Woodstock and Dave and this woman is that we're about to hit a chapter and we'll be doing it next week. And it's uh, chapter 14. It's called The Pursuit. And it's kind of the chapter that it, it's the story that makes me scared of Woodstock. And I think it's a pretty terrifying story. It involves mm. a car chase. It involves an assault. It yeah, involves, heavy. Very heavy. I would say, pretty grotesque overreach of police's mm. yeah, kind of yeah. jurisdiction. And not an uncommon thing to happen. Yeah. So, um, so Paul, yeah. look, I, I've, I've been having a lot of really good feedback from listeners all over the world. Um, it, like in Europe, they're, they're, they're snow, snowed in and, you know, they've got the, that other thing happening. Um, but uh, I think if you're going to really keep listening and, and getting involved, I think it's really important that you actually have the book. Um, so I would strongly recommend getting the book if you don't have it. And I'm not saying that uh, the only reason I'm saying it is that, like me, every single week I sit down before we do this podcast and I read the chapter. And it's so interesting. It's so fascinating. And, and it's, a, it's, a really, it's a really, really good read in that it's very succinct. And, Paul, I'd like to say it's actually, and I don't want this to sort of come across in a weird way, but it's, it's an easy read. You write in a way that's, you know, it's, it's, it's punchy. It's to the point. Um, the way you've got the short chapters, I think, makes it for... It's a, it's a really good book to be able to... You can put it down. Um, and, of course, when we talk about the chapters, as you know, Paul, you draw more stuff out of me, mm. which I think is fantastic. So, yeah, I really, really like doing it. 
Well, look, I think that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Loose Units Origins. We have heaps of really great listener questions uh, for this week's episode of Loose Ends at the tail end of the week on Friday. So if you want to get us to answer some questions, head across to facebook.com forward slash loose units, shoot us a question, and Dad and I will have a chat about it on the show. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you soon for more Loose Units. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.